You're listening to audio from Plank Row Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankrowharvest.org. All right, it's good to be back. How's everybody doing? Uh, the first thing that stood out to me was I've been gone a year, and I don't think Dan's got a haircut in a year. So that's good to know. Um, he's back there hiding in the back. I just giving him a hard time. So it's crazy, man. Crazy. Uh, Romans 6 was just up on the board. So that's where we're going to be today uh, is in Romans 6. And there's some guided notes coming around if you want to follow along or if maybe if you want to draw a picture. Now you've got a piece of paper, you can do that. Uh, but I'm going, to try, I'm going to try to do justice to what Pastor Dale's been walking through with you guys. I didn't just want to show up and, and drop something out of the blue. So I've been in communication with him about, you know, what have you been studying? Where has he been? And so when he talked to me and I listened to the last couple of weeks, he, he's been tackling this question of what happens when I die? You know, do, do I have a body? He entertained that specific question. Where does my spirit go? And those are interesting questions, and certainly the ones that we are rightfully curious about. You know, it's okay to have those questions. Um, but he, as he kind of mentioned over the last couple of weeks, we struggle with those questions because we are what we know, right? You are how you grew up, what your parents taught you, the culture that you lived in, and we are what we know in those regards because that's because of what we've experienced, right? So, I mean, I've got this body. This is the body I know. I don't know what's going to happen specifically after I die in terms of, you know, what's my glorified body going to look like? When am I going to get it? I don't know those things because this is what I know. This is what I live. But the good news is that Scripture, it doesn't leave us completely in the dark. And Pastor Dale's done a good job of walking you through some of the answers that it provides. And primarily, if it, just based on what I heard, maybe you heard something different, but what I heard was he's reminded you primarily over the past two weeks of this one following thing. That where your spirit is, that's where you are. Where your spirit is, that's where you are. Now, obviously, it kind of leaves you on the edge of your seat. There's still some unknown things going on. Uh, so I wrote down some questions like, when, when will we get our heavenly body? When am I going to get it? I think Scripture is very clear that you're going to get one. Jesus exemplified that after his resurrection. And I'm going to get one of those. When am I going to get it? What's it going to look like? What's it going to be like? What's it going to feel like? Um, you know, for that matter, what's heaven going to be like? And then I wrote this one down just for me. Maybe you've never had this question before, but will there be sports in heaven? <laughs> I wrote that one down, you know. I don't, think, I don't think those are bad questions, but I don't think that those questions should occupy the vast majority of our time. And that's the, that's the argument that I want to make to you this morning, that if you're focused, if you're completely focused on those types of questions, you're focused on the wrong things. Because I think we have bigger matters at hand. And so as believers, here's what we've been promised. If you're following along, first blank on your sheet. Here's what we've been promised. That a life devoted to the king will grant you eternity with the king. A life devoted to the king will grant you eternity with the king. And I would argue that's what matters. And that simple statement has great implications for today, for how I choose to live today, for what I'm supposed to do today. So we can think about the future. Everybody does it every single day. We can think about the future. But the reality is that 
we're here and we're here now. Like, this is where I am. My spirit currently resides in this mortal body. So how am I, how are you, how are we supposed to live as believers until that day? Whenever that day is that I get my, my glorified body, how am I supposed to live today? If my spirit resides in this mortal body, what does that mean for me now? And so to answer that question, we're going to be in Romans 6. And we're going to take a deep dive into Romans 6. Uh, we could spend, you guys, you guys that have been here, you know me, we, we could spend six weeks in Romans 6. I don't get six weeks, I got one. So we're going to have to go fast. But what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul, he's going to present to us three things. He's going to present to us the spiritual reality of life as a Christian. right? So, so what's the spiritual realities of I'm a Christian, what does that mean spiritually? Number two, he's going to present to us the physical reality of life as a Christian, right? My spirit's in this mortal body. I'm a Christian. What does that mean? And then third, he's going to present essentially a choice that we got to make. He's going to say, I'm going to give you this information and this information. Now, what are you going to do with it? And so first is the spiritual reality of of life as a Christian. And, And if we think about the book of Romans, hopefully you spent some time studying it. If you haven't, I encourage you to go back and read it this week. Uh, But the first three and a half chapters of Romans, Paul outlines our fallen nature. And what comes with that is necessary judgment from God. So in short, we're all sinners, and we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. That's the truth. Now, that's not a popular truth. That's not what the culture wants you to hear. But the truth is, we're all sinners and deserve nothing but the wrath of God. None of us is righteous, no, not one. That's what the book of Romans says. And then Paul shifts for the next two and a half chapters after that to the message of God's gift of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he goes, hey, here's the bad news, but here's the good news. It's through this faith in Christ that we can be reconciled to God and we can have peace with him. So while we're all sinners, he's still going to give us a way out. And in fact, this is the only way. Sin came into the world through Adam and it was passed down to us. The resulting penalty was death. And so our only hope is the abundance of grace that's made possible through the death of Christ if, there's a big if, if we pledge our allegiance and faith to him. So Paul tells us that as Christians, we've been given this gift. This is a gift and you've been given it. We who were once sinners were condemned to death, but now we've been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. And we've been righteous, we've been made righteous by way of our faith in Christ. That's, that's, that's what Paul is trying to tell us in the first few chapters of Romans. So let's look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
So I want to ask you a question. How, how do you read the Bible? How do you read the Bible? Do you pay attention to the details? Right? Because Scripture clearly tells us it's God-breathed. It's, there's no word choice in Scripture that was simply chance. Right? So God, through the Holy Spirit, He guided men's hands with an intent and a purpose. Every word was chosen for a reason. So if we know that, then isn't it interesting how Paul begins chapter 6? He starts with, what shall we say then? In other words, Paul's saying, so now what? And what he's doing is he's pointing back to what he's just covered. In a sense, Paul's anticipating major objections from his critics and the idea of salvation through faith alone. And we know this by the follow-up question that he asks. He asks, you know, should we continue in a life of sin? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what Paul says. Now, there's two potential arguments here that non-believers may use. So Paul's anticipating these arguments, and here's two of them. The first is that we place an emphasis on God's grace, and that only serves as motivation to sin more. Right Now, why would that be? Well, because if we think about this kind of mathematically, because more sin would then equal more grace, right? So like if I sin more, then I get more grace. Now, to the Christian, hopefully, hopefully, that sounds absurd, right? That's, that's crazy, and rightfully so. But to the non-believer, it kind of makes some sense maybe, right? I think the more convincing argument and the one that, that can be found in the thought process of some inside the church and outside the church is the notion of this get-out-of-jail-free card, right? So, in other words, God's grace covers me, so sin, eh, it's not really that big a deal, right? If I sin, I can be forgiven, so no sweat, no big deal, what's the problem? I think that's what Paul's anticipating here, and he's trying to fire back against it. So what does he say? What's Paul's response to this line of thinking? He says, by no means, right? And you see the Greek there on your sheet, it's meganoito, it's, it's exclamation. The, the better translation might be understood as, may it never be, may no one ever think this insanity. Now, Paul, throughout the New Testament, he uses this same phrase 14 times in his letters. And it's the strongest Greek idiom for repudiating a statement. So you say something foolish, and I fire back. This is, in the Greek, this is the strongest thing he could say. It, it conveys a sense of outrage. And, and really, I think what Paul's trying to say is, I cannot even begin to fathom that anyone would ever believe that this could be true. It's crazy talk. That's what Paul's saying. He goes on in verse 3. And he talks about the full commitment of a Christian. So we're thinking about what does this mean for me spiritually. Paul goes on and he writes, To those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, they've also been baptized into his death. Now, we just spoke about the ordinances. And when we see this word baptism, we immediately make this connection with water baptism. right? And that's okay. I think it's okay. It actually serves as a good word picture for what's going on here. But I don't think Paul's specifically speaking of water baptism here. Instead, what he's talking about is this full commitment, right? He's saying there's this full commitment, and, and it creates this spiritual connection with Christ. Like, if you ever heard the phrase, like, union with Christ or unity with Christ, this is what he's talking about. He's, he's essentially telling the believer, he's saying, listen, 
with the commitment that you've made, when you place your faith in Christ, you're spiritually connected to Christ's death as well. See, we have to be united in his death if we have any hope in being united in his resurrection. So just as Christ was raised again, we can also spiritually be raised to walk in newness of life. That's what he says here. So I think if you, if you cut right down to it, the main idea here is you can't experience the new life that Christ brings without the spiritual death of the old man that lived with inside of you. He, he says that old man has been put to death. Right? I can't experience what Christ has to offer if that old man has not been put to death first. Now, when we do that, right, when that happens, when that takes place, there's benefits that come with it. And that's where Paul goes next. He, he continues, he makes it abundantly clear that there are spiritual benefits to a relationship with Christ, right? I mean, hopefully, if you're coming here every Sunday, like that's kind of the main idea, right? There's these benefits to choosing to follow Christ. I think there's a lot, but Paul talks about three here really specifically. The first is, like we just talked about, the old man has been crucified with Christ. The old man is dead. In verse 6, he says, Since we've been united with Christ in his death, our old self has been crucified with him. Now, what does that mean? You don't hear that kind of language every day, right? My old self has been crucified, has been put to death. What does that mean? Paul's pointing you back to your old, unregenerate life. That just means hey, before you were saved, what your life was like. I'm pointing you back to that. And he declares, he's saying, listen, that life, it's of no use to you. It's of no use. Now, we see in our English translation here, we see the word old, right? The old man. But Paul's not speaking of something that's old in years. So some, somebody may come walking off the street and say, so I got to be old to get saved, right? Because I can't kill an old man if he's not old yet, Right? Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's not speaking of something that's old in years. Instead, he's saying that the way you lived before, it has no value. That way of life, there's no value to it. It was of no use. That's what he means when he says old. It's like worn out. It's decrepit. There's no use there. It's only holding you back from, from real life. So this old man is dead. Now, you have to ask the question, too. So if, if we understand that, then the next question that should pop up in your mind is, well, how, how did it hold us back? How did that old life hold us back? Why was it of no use? Well, the answer to that question is simply sin. And that leads us to Paul's second point here. He says, because our old self was crucified with Christ. So the old man is dead. And because of that, now we're no longer enslaved to sin. So he makes a connection between this old man, before you were saved, and sin. And that connection is a strong one. Right? The connection between the unsaved man and sin is a strong connection. Now, understandably, maybe you're scratching your head a little bit. Like, does that even make sense to me? What are you talking about? Because, and, and here's why. Because the reality is you deal with sin every day. Right? Whether you're a believer or not, you deal with sin every day. It's an ever-present reality. But here's the distinction that Paul's making. There, there's a distinction between the, the way that sin affected your life before and the way it's going to affect your life now. In verse 6 and 7, he writes the following. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, that's an interesting statement. Paul's telling us that prior to salvation, you're a slave to sin. You're enslaved to it. You're owned by it. It directs every step you take. And with that comes the penalty of death. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual one. An eternity outside the presence of God. That's what spiritual death is. However, once we choose to follow Christ, once we die with Christ, then we're set free from that sin. We're no longer enslaved to us. It has no control over me spiritually. The reality is that it, it's present, right? Temptations are real. And as long as my spirit is in this mortal body, I'm going to struggle with it. But it's lost. It's, let me rephrase that so we don't get confused. It's a loser, right? It doesn't win. It has no control over me. It has no dominion over me. Remember, we're talking about spiritually, right? It cannot condemn me to an eternal separation from God anymore. Sin cannot do that. Its eternal effect is gone. That's what Paul's getting at. And, and he's going to take us now to a third point, a third spiritual benefit. So we've died with Christ, and because we have died with Christ, we also get to live with Him. This is how we know that sin's been defeated. Paul tells us that Christ, He was raised from the dead, He'll never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. He defeated death and sin on our behalf. He paid the penalty so you could reap the reward. Right? That's the ultimate definition of love. Right? And Jesus said Himself, like, no greater love than a man lay down his life for his brother. That's what he did for you. He said, Jesus did that so many times. If you read the gospel, he goes, all right, let me tell you something. Here's the definition of this. No, oh, by the way, I'm going to live it out so you can see it. That's what he did. He paid the penalty that you deserved so that you could reap the reward, so that you could live eternally with him. Paul says, for the death he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So when we think about this death of Christ, we can think about it in two senses. First is, he met the legal demands of sin upon the sinner, right? You're a sinner. The penalty is death. The judge drops the gavel. Guilty. You're Dunskis, <laughs> right? You, you deserve death. But Jesus steps in and says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay that penalty for you. I'm going to meet that legal demand. And then second, he broke the power of sin over those who belong to him. The true beauty of, of Christ's death, and that's what Paul is getting at, is that it never needs repeating. Right? If you go back to the Old Testament, if, if we had to cover some sin, you screwed up, way to go. You screwed up. All right, so we've got to march up to the temple, and what do we got to do? We've got to kill something, right? We've got to kill an animal. All right? And you go home, you hadn't even made it home yet. And what have you done? Screwed up again. So what do we got to do? We got to come back tomorrow. We got to kill something else, right, to cover that sin. Paul's saying the beauty of Christ's death is it doesn't need repeating. It was once for all, past, present, future. So as a result, we as believers, we're to have unreserved confidence in what we know to be true, a confidence that affects our actions and our decisions, right? The old man is dead, 
Spiritually, I'm no longer tied to sin. I'm no longer enslaved to it. Will I struggle with it physically? Sure, but I'm not tied to it. So, if I'm spiritually dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, what are the physical ramifications of that? What does that mean for, like, I have a body, I can touch it, right? I can feel pain. I'm, I'm living in this world right now. So what's the physical ramifications of that? What's the physical reality of life as a Christian? Well, he goes on in 12 to 14 to tell us that. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Anytime you see a therefore, he's pointing back to what he just told you. So because you know all these spiritual things to be true, don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So in, immediately in verse 12, Paul presents us with two things. The first is, you have a mortal body. Shocker, right? You have a body. And it might be easy to wish... That upon salvation, we would immediately, so I, I choose to follow Christ, bam, I'm immediately ushered into perfect existence in the presence of God, but that's not reality, right? That's not the reality. I'm still here. We remain in a broken and fallen world, and a part of that broken and fallen world is your, is your body. It's a part of it. We got to deal with it. I just turned 43. It's been really good. And it's not bad, but I'm slowly, I feel a little different than I did at 33, right? You've got to deal with some stuff. As we get older, it breaks down. This body breaks down. We've got to deal with disease. We've got to deal with sickness. You know, this temporal and this mortal body is not perfect. And, and proof of that, if we didn't have any of that other stuff, proof of that is we're tempted by sin. In Scripture, there's a, there's a theme in Scripture uh, that it points directly to this. Many times it's this idea that our flesh is weak, right? That's just another way to say, hey, it's tempted by sin constantly. Now, this, this sounds like a real downer, right? You're saved. You got all these spiritual benefits. Great. You're still here. You're tempted to sin. Sorry. Right? But Paul goes on, and, and this second fact in verse 12, it's a positive one. You got this mortal body, it's a reality, but hey, it's no longer under the bondage of sin. Now again, maybe that's strange and confusing to you, that doesn't make sense. Didn't I just tell you that we're tempted to sin, that this body is tempted to sin? I did, and that's true. You know it's true. Even if I told you it wasn't true, you'd be like, no, that's true. <laughs> you know you're tempted by sin. But your body's no longer a slave to sin. It's no longer under the bondage of sin. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. This is what he's saying. Spiritually, Christ has put sin to death. The old man, that old man that was no longer useful, is no more. So you're no longer a slave to sin. So if you know that, don't let sin control your life. That's what Paul's saying. Don't let sin control your life. The Christian life is to be set apart. You're, you're to be different. So does that mean that sin doesn't exist? No. Sin is an ever-present reality in our fallen world. We've talked about that. And yet, while we battle the temptation of sin, sin is, this is what I want you to hear, sin is not to be a pattern of life. It's not to reign or take a dominant position. 
That's what Paul's saying. He's just reminding us that since we understand the spiritual realities of our union with Christ and all the benefits that that entails, if we understand that, then we should live it out while we're here. I want you to think of it this way. This is the best thing that I could come up in my mind. I want you, if, you, if you know me, some of you are like, who is this guy and when is Dale getting back? If, if you know me, you understand. So as a school teacher, like, at some point, I'm going to ask you to participate. right? So here comes your moment to participate. One simple question. I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have worked the same job your entire life? Okay, nobody. I thought I might get one. One. One guy. Okay? So that's, that's what I was expecting, so that's good. You passed. The vast majority of you have worked multiple jobs, right? And I think everybody would agree with this. When you work a job, you have to, contrary to what the teenagers in my classroom think, when you work a job, you have to operate under this construct of authority, right? I don't care if you're running your own business. You got to operate under this construct of authority, right? You report to somebody. So in other words, you do what the boss tells you to do. That's what you do. Sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't. You do what the boss tells you to do. Now, some of you might call that enslavement, right? I, I work with some people who are like, oh, it's really, this is totally off topic, but it really stresses me out when I pass teachers in the hall and they go, hey, Wednesday, only two more days. And I, as we pass and they're going the other way, I'm like, why do you hate your life? But... Maybe you consider having to do what the boss tells you to do, like enslavement, right? But either way, if you want to do well in your job, if you want to advance, you want to get a raise, all those good things, you're going to do what the boss tells you to do. Now, imagine, and this shouldn't be a stretch because only one person raised their hand, imagine that you change jobs, right? So you change jobs. So with the new job comes a new boss, and understandably, what do you do? Well, now you do what that boss tells you to do. Right? I got a new boss, new authority. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. Here's the question. How absurd would it be if you continued to follow the request of your former boss? You don't work for him anymore. I'm over here at this new job, and I get a text from my old boss that says, hey, man, I really need you to do this. And you're like, yes, sir. That makes no sense. I've got a new boss that I've got to report to. I don't report to you anymore. That's what Paul's saying. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He said, you once lived under the reign of this terrible boss called sin. But as a believer in Christ, you've been freed from that. You've been freed from sin's grasp. You don't work for it anymore. I got a new authority in Christ. If I'm a believer, I've pledged my allegiance to him. Right? And so my greatest aim should do what? Do what the boss tells me to do. Right? My greatest aim should be to please him. We're, we were uh, we we're studying Romans in a men's Bible study that I've got in the, in the morning. And we were talking about this last week and just the concept of how I brought up. And hopefully as you progress in your faith, this is the, this is the, the progress that you make. But when, when, I'm, when I'm a young boy, okay, so I can think about my children, when I'm a young boy. First and foremost, right, I do what my dad tells me to do because I don't want my dad to beat me, right? That's the first lesson I have to learn as a little boy. I do what my dad tells me to do because I don't want my dad to punish me, right? 
But as I get older, right, and so now I'm 43 on the other end of that spectrum, I do what my dad tells me to do because I love my dad. And my dad's name means something. And if I step out of line, then I drag his name down. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that if you're a believer and you've pledged your allegiance to Christ, you do what the boss tells you to do. Not necessarily the more you progress in the faith. Not necessarily because I don't want, I don't want him to get me. Because I love my boss. I, I want to I I please him. Right? Paul goes on in verse 13, and he's talking about the body. And he presents this interesting dilemma. And the dilemma is, hey, you've got this physical body, it's a reality, and you can use it for good or evil. You can use this body for good or evil. Paul shares this same idea in Romans chapter 12, later on in verse 12. One, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? Essentially, he's saying, listen, you got a choice, man. you got a body. What are you going to do with it? I'm telling you, I'm urging you, present it as a living sacrifice. And that's an interesting verse. And, and if you think about Romans as a whole, and you kind of get big picture, it's not as weird. But if you think about just 12.1, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what is Paul talking about by spiritual worship? Like this really weird language. Present your body as a living sacrifice, right? holy and acceptable, that's your spiritual worship. What is he talking about? I think he's making a connection with what he's just told you in chapter 6. Hey, there's all these spiritual... There's all these spiritual blessings and all these spiritual connections and spiritual realities that come with the benefit of being a believer. He's just covered all those. He's told you what they were, and he's saying, as a response, you should offer the highest form of service. That's spiritual worship. I understand what you've done for me spiritually, and now I'm going to be thankful and I'm going to be obedient. In the ESV translation, Paul uses the term instrument when speaking about our body and its members. pretty interesting the, the greek term is is hopla which may better be translated as an instrument of warfare or a weapon so if you don't have an esv you may have a translation that uses the word weapon right i think that's a more accurate translation and it's that's fascinating again how do you read the bible do you just glance over things do you just take things for granted like that's an interesting word right there why are we using that why are we using that word your body is what paul's saying your body is a weapon. It's a weapon. And you may ask the question, well, a weapon for what? Well, Paul tells us, it's either going to be a weapon for righteousness or it's going to be a weapon for unrighteousness. Your body's going to be used for good or it's going to be used for evil. One of the implications from this is that your life and your actions have an impact that move far beyond just yourself. It's one of the common lies of the culture. Well, it's not going to hurt anybody. What's the big deal? No, that's going to be the furthest from the truth. Everything you do affects somebody else. Your body's either going to be used as a weapon for righteousness or unrighteousness. You have an opportunity as a believer to impact the world. And the reality is this. You know, 19, 1980s. i show you a little bit how old I am. 1980s. Anybody remembers this? If not, I'll have a good conversation with myself. But 1980s, Charles, Bar- Charles Barkley. I'm not a role model. Uh, yeah, you are, Charles. Like, you may not want to be a role model, but you're a role model. Paul's saying the same thing here. You're a weapon. 
You're going to be a weapon for good. You're going to be a weapon for bad. You're going to have an influence over the world. I'm not that important. I don't want to have an influence. You don't get a say. You're going to be an influence. Is it going to be for good or is it going to be for evil? That's what Paul's saying. So he's saying, if you know that to be true and you've proclaimed to be a follower of Christ, then live in a manner that's going to draw others to him. You understand all these blessings that you've received. If you really understand them, then you want more people to be benefactors of those too. So live in a way that would draw people to him. He wraps up this section just reminding us, hey, sin doesn't exercise dominion over you as a believer. It is very capable of impacting and controlling the human condition. And it does so for the unbeliever. But for those who have pledged their allegiance to Christ, you're still going to struggle with sin, but you have to make the choice to not live in a sinful pattern of life. That's what Paul's saying. And then in 15 through 23, he's basically going to tell you, listen, I've told you all this stuff. Now you've got to make a choice. He says, what then? So here he goes again. So what are we going to do with it? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have became, become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking on human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to the lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. That's an interesting statement. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's interesting that Paul, once again, starts us off with, so what now? What are we going to do with this? He's made the case of salvation through Christ and that it comes with spiritual and physical realities for the believer. So what are we to do with them? Well, we've got a choice to make. And again, he hammers this home point, that, this point home, that we're not to continue living in a pattern of sin simply because we're under grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. Doing so would not indicate a changed life. And so to do that, Paul, Paul now is going to drive it home by pointing us to this imagery of slavery. He tells us you're either a slave to righteousness or unrighteousness. Now, this is not a popular notion. It's not a popular opinion, especially under the Western guise of freedom, right? We're all about freedom. But Paul tells us, listen, you're going to be enslaved by something, and it appears that you're going to have a say in the matter. So you're going to be a slave to something, but you get to pick. Paul says that we are the ones presenting ourselves as obedient slaves, right? If I'm a follower of Christ, that implies action and implies a choice on our behalf and one that we're going to be eternally responsible for. The choice is found in, well, who or what are we obedient to? Sin or Christ? That's the choice. We're going to be obedient to sin or we're going to be obedient to Christ. Now, if he goes into this slavery language and that makes people uncomfortable 
But we've got to be clear about the language that Paul's using and why he's using it. Throughout the passage and the entire New Testament, the Greek word used here is doulos. That means slave. It's always to be translated as slave. It is not as much as we culturally want to gentle the blow for people. It is not to be translated as servant. It's a slave. It's a slave. If we translate it as servant, that would have been foreign. You bring all these people out of the first century, and you're talking about the same passage, you talk, start talking about servants and be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's a slave. And Paul says, hey, I'm using this language because of your human limitations. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to do my best to explain this divine truth so you can understand it. Now, you understand slavery. So let's talk about it. He explains that as an unbeliever, we were, we're completely controlled by sin. We presented our members, that's an active choice, right? I presented myself as a slave to sin, which led to more sin. That's a pattern of life. But as believers, we present our members, again, an active choice, as slaves to righteousness, which will lead to, lead to what? Sanctification. Again, a pattern of life, right? More than just one moment. What he's saying here is we're looking for consistency. What are you going to be a slave to? I believe that one of the other things that Paul's trying to get at here is the fact that there are demands of slavery. Slavery demands certain things. In verse 20, Paul tells the reader that in their prior life, they were free in regards to righteousness. And I made the point. Oh, that's an interesting statement. They were free in regard to righteousness. What does that mean? Well, in other words, they were not held captive by a desire for righteousness. They just did evil and did more evil because they wanted to do more evil. There was nothing holding them back going, this is not a good idea. They weren't being drawn to anything righteous. Instead, what? They were held captive to more sin. I just sin, I sin some more, and I get deeper, and I get deeper, and I'm held captive by it. The obvious conclusion would be, well, this should work the other way as well. right? If I'm, if I'm no longer held captive by sin, then I should be drawn towards righteous things. And I shouldn't be drawn towards things that are unrighteous. So whatever you're a slave to... It's going to demand certain things. And I think at the top of the list is obedience. That takes us back to that word slave. It's always used in context of being owned by, belonging to, and being wholly subordinate to one's master. That's what a slave is. John MacArthur points to five, five ideas in relation to slavery and obedience, right? What does slavery demand? He said it demands these things. First and foremost, it demands absolute obedience. That means completely obedient. It's this recognition of absolute authority. Second, it demands compulsory obedience, which just means I'm going to do what I'm told to do. Then it demands consistent obedience, steady obedience over time. That's a pattern of life, right? And it, it demands exclusive obedience, which means obedience to one thing and one thing only. And then it demands loyal obedience, which just means if we're talking about spiritual things, it, it means allegiance even unto death. So the believer is obligated to this obedience as they have been bought with a price. So you're, you're going to practice those five things? Are you, you going to practice it in relations to sin, or are you going to practice it in relation to Christ? 
And Paul goes on and he says in verses 21 and 22, hey, listen, the choice that you make, whether you serve sin or righteousness, it's going to produce fruit. Both will produce fruit. That's the same terminology that Jesus used, right? In Matthew 7, 17, Jesus said a good tree will produce good fruit, a bad tree will produce bad fruit. Not only is that true in the physical world, but it's also true in the spiritual world. And Paul doubles down. He tells us, listen, bad fruit, it only leads to death. He says, if you look back at your prior life, you're just reminded of all those shameful things, those sinful things you did, which were of no value and produced nothing good. No good fruit was produced. There was no lasting benefit to living this way. That's why he talked about the old man. There's no value here. And on the contrary, Paul tells us that now we've been set free from sin and the fruit that we produce by the way of living righteously, that leads to sanctification and an eternal reward. So he's laid out, he's laid out all these things. He's laid out, what, is it, what are the spiritual ramifications of me living a Christian life? What are the physical ramifications of me living a Christian life? Right? And then he tells us, essentially, you've got a choice to make. Because you're going to do one or the other. You're going to be a slave to sin. You're going to be a slave to Christ. With an implication that you have the choice. And then he comes to this last verse, which most people know, part of the Romans road, Romans 3.23. And he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? It's this sober reminder that Paul, he places it right at the end of chapter 6. He said, I've told you all these things. But as a reminder, if you go down this road, it's going to lead to death. If you go down this road, it's going to lead to eternal life. And that's Paul's way of saying, hey guys, choices have consequences. So choose wisely. So, we began, and we were entertaining all these interesting questions, right? Like, what's my heavenly body going to look like? Is it going to look better than this one? Is it going to feel better? What's, when am I going to get it? What, what's heaven going to be like? Those, those are all fun questions, but they all take a back seat to the promise that Paul's reminded us of. A life devoted to the king will grant you eternity with the king. And, and here's the thing. All those other questions, what's my glorified body going to be like? When am I going to get it? Do you trust the king? Do you trust the king? Why do I have to worry about that stuff? Because if I've pledged my allegiance to him and I trust him, he, he's got it covered, man. If, if, I, if I took, I, I would hope this to be true. But if I, if, I, if I pulled aside any of my kids and I said, hey, I need you to go pack a bag and I need you to, to pack this, this, and this, and we're leaving. We're going to go somewhere special. Just, I just need you to get that stuff and get ready to go. We're not going to deliberate for 15 minutes whether it's, you know, should I do this? Is this going to be good? Is this bad dad taking me somewhere bad? Like, they're just going to get excited, and we're going to go. Now, why? Because they trust dad. Because they trust dad. So if I have place my life in the hands of the king and he says pack the bag then just pack the bag why do i have to ask so many questions where are we going when are we going to get there what are we doing what are we going to do when we get there it's just going to be good because the king's the one taking me that's all i need to know
That's good right there, man. Pack the bag. Just pack the bag. And, and live the way that he's asked you to live. Are you going to deal with tough things? Absolutely. Are you going to struggle? Absolutely. But Paul's just reminding you that, listen, Paul even says, if you go on later in Romans, he says, Dadgummit, I don't, I don't want to do this, and I'm doing it. But he's reminding you, look, you've got all these things that have been promised to you. Your life should not look this way on a consistent basis. Are you going to struggle? Absolutely. Should we struggle just for the sake of struggling so Jesus can forgive me more? No. Pack the bag. Trust the king. And just do what he's asked you to do. And, and as Pastor Dale said, I'll close with this, where my spirit is is where I'm at. And last time I checked, I'm right here. So if God's asked me to do certain things, then I'm going to do certain things and we'll let him take care of the rest. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and just a smart guy. And the fact that he could lay out all these arguments and, and just present to us in a logical way that, that you're a good king. And that at the end of the day, regardless of all the questions that we have, that we can trust the king. And Lord, I pray that these people today, including myself, would would cast aside all the things that hold us back and that we just pack our bag and we get ready for the trip. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was told to remind you, and it may be entertaining, we, we are having service tonight. We will be in Hosea chapter 7. That's always fun when somebody calls you up and says, hey, Hosea 7. So uh, if for nothing but sheer entertainment be here tonight, <laughs> we'll trudge through it. But thank you guys for having me. Let's eat some lunch.